For today's mini-sode, we bring you an old war story. But this is not a story about a war. Because this is not a war, even though we're fighting. We've been fighting since 1868, but this is not a war. At least, not a war in a traditional sense, or even a war that one of the sides wants to acknowledge as existing. Because there are no armies or mortars, no shots fired, no sides in a standoff, we cannot possibly be at war. Even in the face of the opponent that has changed 30 years after we started fighting, we have not been able to stop. A war is an armed conflict, and if there are no arms raised, then this cannot possibly be a war. In fact, I know it's not a war, because in the 1910s, we fought the war to end all wars, and just to make sure they ended wars right, our allies went to war again. On January 1st, 1942, shortly after the United States entered the Second World War, 26 nations signed a UN declaration to support the Atlantic Charter. We of the United Nations are agreed on certain broad principles in the kind of peace we seek. The Atlantic Charter applies not only to the parts of the world that border the Atlantic, but to the whole world. Disarmament of aggressors, self-determination of nations and peoples, and the four freedoms Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. This document was the result of a conversation between U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. When these global heavyweights met the previous summer, Roosevelt was aware of the problems with colonialism and even said, and I quote, I can't believe that we can fight a war against fascist slavery and at the same time not work to free people all over the world from a backward colonial policy. Churchill recognized the hypocrisy in his stance. I guess the oppression he's talking about does not include his segregated army or the Jim Crow South. Was U.S. colonial policy in Guam not backward? Was the policy in Hawaii not backward? What about Puerto Rico? What about the thousands of islands that make up the Philippines? And so he asked him, What about the Philippines? To which Roosevelt replied, I'm glad you mentioned them. They get their independence, you know, in 1946. And Roosevelt was glad he asked about them, because Churchill picked the wrong country. His underlying point was correct. The U.S. had a colonial presence in several places, but he picked the Philippines. What if he had said, what about Puerto Rico? See, the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico was subject to U.S. federal law. That meant its people were subject to the World War II military draft. While scores of nationalists were jailed for dodging the draft, over 65,000 Puerto Ricans would enlist on behalf of the U.S. Army. They believed in the Atlantic Charter. Many thought, Maybe if we fight alongside them and they see my blood is red like theirs, they will see that we are just as deserving of liberty as their ancestors who seized it from Britain. They thought the U.S. will uphold the charter. And the enlistment in the army of a backward colonial overseer wasn't even the half of it. 
Puerto Rican residents of the island of Vieques got a taste of the war for democracy when they were evicted from their land by the U.S. Navy. They were treated like lab rats, experimented on to see if mustard gas reacted differently in non-whites. Their eyes burned, their stomachs turned, and they vomited all the same. Because while the U.S. Army discriminated on the basis of color, mustard gas did not. And speaking of color, that Jim Crow segregation in the U.S. Army I mentioned earlier applied to many Puerto Ricans too. But this is not a story about a war because there is no war. That was just the part about the war in which the Allies knocked the world off its access and the world they promised when it was over. This next part, though, is about broken promises and calling said promise breakers on their BS. So check it. After the Allies won the war and all wars were said to have ended for real this time, spoiler alert, they didn't. There was a matter of those promises. I'll play them again in case you forgot. Disarmament of aggressors, self-determination of nations and peoples, and the four freedoms, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. In the wake of the war, the United Nations made up of the independent countries that signed that charter formed a committee. It was concerned with trusteeship territories and non-self-governing territories, which essentially meant colonies. The UN agreed that certain countries like India and the Philippines were ready for self-governance. Racist sentiments among the northern world, though, led world leaders to believe that African nations were, and I quote, politically immature, backwards, and not ready for self-governance. The Atlantic Charter applies not only to the parts of the world that border the Atlantic, but to the whole world. So where does that leave Puerto Rico? Well, the U.S. under President Truman was afraid of being called a nation of colonizers on a world stage. But they wanted to keep their colonies. The island of Puerto Rico, as you see, is a thousand miles from the tip of Florida. Here's the Panama Canal down here. So you see the uh, strategic importance of Puerto Rico to the United States of America. So they came up with some real slick-ish to allow them to keep their strongholds. The crazy part is, Truman needed some help coming up with the plan from none other than the president of the Puerto Rican Popular Democratic Party, Luis Munoz Marin. We still had the uh, two solutions, the statehood and... and uh, uh, independence, but I got another point of view from Luis Munoz Marin, who was president of the Puerto Rican Senate. He came and explained to me that Puerto Rico ought not to be cut loose from the United States. So, the first thing they did was appoint the first native Puerto Rican governor. But that wasn't enough. Self-determination of nations and peoples. So then, in 1947, Congress approved legislation allowing Puerto Ricans to elect their own governor. One year later, I signed a bill authorizing the people of Puerto Rico to elect their own governor. After seeing the U.S. relationship with Puerto Rico through war, some veterans who returned from war joined the Nationalist Party, which favored independence. The Nationalist Party leader, Pedro Albizu Campos, was released from prison. Nationalist sentiment was growing. At the same time, 
the popular Democratic Party was on the rise politically. And with the support of the U.S. government, the legislature passed Law 53, also known as the Gag Law, which made it a crime to express Puerto Rican patriotism in any way, including speaking about independence or singing patriotic songs. And, and, and for a long time, Puerto Ricans weren't allowed to have their own flag because it was unpatriotic to have a flag to represent. It was illegal. It was scary. People who violated the law could be jailed and sentenced without trial or due process. Freedom from want and freedom from fear. In November of 1948, Puerto Rico would have its first election. And in a nation where it was illegal to display acts of patriotism, voters overwhelmingly elected the president of the party that enacted the gag law. Munoz Marin was elected governor of Puerto Rico and he made a great hit with the population down there by calling his program Operation Bootstrap. I could tell y'all how bootstrapping is a myth, but instead, I'm going to jump to 1950 because that was the year that was the wildest ride. On July 3rd, with the UN pressure on and the summer heat in full effect, the U.S. Congress passed the Puerto Rico Federal Relations Act of 1950, which granted Puerto Ricans the right to create a constitution. The Puerto Rican people got to vote on whether or not to accept the act via a referendum that also gave them the chance to decide the nature of the U.S.-Puerto Rico relationship. Self-determination of nations and peoples. Let Governor Munoz Marin tell it, and it went splendid. The people of Puerto Rico have overwhelmingly chosen another form of freedom, that is, their commonwealth status in voluntary association with the United States. When the people of Puerto Rico uh, voted to ratify the act of Congress that uh, offered commonwealth status, the vote was 76% in favor. But I'm getting ahead of myself because that vote didn't happen until after 1950. Back in 1950, we're going to remember what Truman said two years ago about our options in this situation. Statehood and, and uh, uh, independence. Come 1950, neither of these options were even on the ballot. The nationalists know this. They recognize the ballot was a yes or no choice. A vote no is a choice to remain as they are. A vote yes is to become a freely associated state and test out this new relationship that would grant slightly more autonomy but still hold the island subject to the will of the United States. Their commonwealth status in voluntary association with the United States. While this would send a message to the world that the U.S. was upholding the ideals of the Charter, independistas and nationalists recognize that without the option for independence, they would essentially remain a colony. Self-determination of nations and peoples. And... The summer weather wasn't even the hottest part of the story because things really heated up in October. On October 12th, Puerto Ricans learned that the 65th Infantry would be fighting in Korea. The island's newspaper were full of stories and pictures of the soldiers and the ceremonies held prior to their departure. Island-wide, people were divided on whether or not Puerto Ricans should serve. With the support of the governor and a large campaign, Thousands of draft-aged Puerto Ricans volunteered for the 65th. However, there were also 
thousands of youth refusing to be inducted into the army. Even amongst those serving, the 65th of the Korean War was as divided as the island, with members of the regiment who believed in the Commonwealth as a step toward independence and others who wanted independence quickened in a hurry. A few weeks later, starting October 26, the Insular Police began armed arrest of several members of the Nationalist Party. After an armed struggle in Makana on October 29th, the United States government declared martial law in Puerto Rico and Governor Munoz Marin sent the Puerto Rican National Guard to descend on Nationalist hideouts. In Utuado, la consternación producida por la revuelta nacionalista hace que el gobernador Luis Muñoz Marín proceda a movilizar el regimiento 295 de la Guardia Nacional. Este regimiento de aproximadamente 5.000 efectivos tenía además cuatro aviones de combate que se utilizaron contra las fuerzas nacionalistas de la isla. The following day, October 30th, 1950, became known as the Puerto Rican Nationalist Revolt. Learning about the nationalists and especially the, well, I want to say battles, but that sounds like a lot. You know, like the like the fights between the nationalists taking over government buildings and fighting with the police. Dozens of nationalists were killed and wounded and hundreds of others were arrested and held in prison in several armed skirmishes. Disarmament of aggressors, self-determination of nations and peoples, and the four freedoms. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. The Nationalist Party was able to make one large cry of dissatisfaction before they were effectively crushed. There is no war on Borican because let Truman and the U.S. tell it, it was a few insane insurgents that did not represent the people. Let Munoz Marin tell it, there was no war. Sure, there were arms for a few days, but the insane insurgency was silenced in a few days. Certainly, there was no war. It's not like they dropped mortars. Our history is very sanitized. So they say, oh, well, you know, now everybody's all mixed together and it's all nice. And and then the United States came and this is where we are. And they kind of jumped a lot of stuff <laughs> especially anything concerning the nationalists or the separatist movement and you don't know you don't know what you don't know right so since this is not a story about war it can't possibly be a story about the revolt no this is a story about what happened right after not a few years later when the U.S. successfully convinced the United Nations Eighth Assembly that Puerto Rico was not a colony. Not the following year, when the 65th Infantry would become heroes of the Korean War before being subject to the largest court-martial of the war for posting the Puerto Rican flag after a victory. It is a story of a man they called crazy. It is a story of how discussion and critique of Puerto Rico's colonial status stayed alive through his art. On November 2nd, 1950, while they were rounding up the usual suspects, they came for Matos Paoli. We are talking about one of the most famous Puerto Rican poets. He was a professor at the University of Puerto Rico. In 1977, he was nominated for a Nobel Prize in Literature. 
but I'm getting ahead of myself again. We're in 1950, and in 1950, and in 1977, and even as early as 1933, Francisco Matos Paoli was a Puerto Rican nationalist. He himself was not part of the uprisings a few days earlier, but he was the Secretary General of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and was praised by their leader, Don Pedro, who had told a crowd of people that April that they had just heard inspiration from one of the most grand poets. When the police came for him, they expected to find a stockpile of weapons. All they found was a Puerto Rican flag. Oh, right, there was a gag law and we couldn't have any Puerto Rican flags anywhere. And it, it was illegal. His flag and speeches he made earlier that year, including the one where he was complimented by Albizu Campos, were used as evidence of his rebellion. And so he was sentenced to 20 years in prison. While they cut Matos Paoli off from the world and declared him and many other nationalists insane when they released him a few years later, they could not stop one of the greatest weapons in the fight for social change. Art. The Madness Declaration was big and a typical play in the colonial handbook. Just as African nations were politically immature and backward, the people of Bordigan who wanted the right to self-governance were insane and fanatical. The crazy thing about his insanity, though, if you read one of the three books of poetry Matos Paoli writes in these years, if you look at his art, it's the madness that set him free. Todo lo que es suave, el candor de amapola denodada, el enorme quetzal de la nada. Pero yo no quiero el sol que fructifica en los saludos. Quiero la serena oquedad, el silencio vacío que tumba el ala de los ruiseñores. Yo quiero conocerme, abandonar la ignota multiplicación de los astros, la abundancia tranquila en que el amor es loco. No quiero el devenir, ese espesor de niebla que amarga en la montaña, ese pasmo redondo de lo lleno que sabe a traición en la morena noche alucinada. Está de más el cuadribio fulgurante, el grito sonrosado de pájaros, el triste arado que relumbra en la paciencia de la tierra. Yo, porque yo, aún la conciencia vacila en el remordimiento. Tiene delante las aristas fugaces, las venas, la música primaveral, el confundido siervo que pelea entre el río y el mar absorto que busco ahora mismo, en el instante atleta y fuera de mí mismo, en la premonición cegada, en la oclusión del mundo que me cita, tal vez Dios me liberte del arcoerizado tedio de las nubes que pasan en giras de armonía. If not confined to sanity, he doesn't have to see the capitalist colonial relationship as what is best for his country. He is not bound to thinking that people who never set foot in his homeland somehow know how best to fix his homeland. Matos Paoli did not simply reclaim his clinical declaration as insane, but he declared that a little madness might be what others needed. 
He considers his six books of poetry to be primarily patriotic. And critics of Puerto Rican literature credit him with the formation of this national patriotic conscience. Matos Paoli was far from the only Puerto Rican creator that was an independista. It's kind of like, it's, kind of, it's a little bit bleak. It's beautiful prose, but if you read like La Llamarada or La Charca or La Carreta, it's all about that, you know, that, that space where these people were being oppressed and they're finding beauty and that, that comes from that. And, and some of the poetry, like Julio Burgos' poetry, it's a call to arms and and a call to to create a space that I think most Puerto Ricans maybe are not didn't used to be so ready for. Many creators from La Generación del Cincuenta, including Rene Marquez, who wrote La Careta, Lorenzo Omar, the famous painter and calligrapher, and novelist Abelardo Diaz Alfaro, all had works that called into question the relationship between the United States and Puerto Rico. The Nationalist Armed Uprising died in 1950, but if we look at the art that came out of Puerto Rico soon after, we see that the energy never died. And sometimes, the best way to take the fight to an armed enemy is with art. Some of the the gripes people have here is like, oh, well, Puerto Ricans don't protest, so Puerto Ricans don't fight back and stuff. And it was like, oh, well, we did. We've been fighting back for a whole bunch of time. And it just so happens that we're in a, in a time right now that you just can't take up rifles and <laughs> take a building. But it happened, that happened, and, and there were repercussions. There are not guns in this fight, but we are not unarmed. They can and will do everything they can to control our arms but they cannot control our art. Artists may be a little mad, but art is activism. Activism is art. And often the creation of art is a radical act. I hope you enjoyed today's mini-sode and that you tune in for the next mini-sode about art and activism. The guests you heard today in the Echoes were Isabel Sofia Diepa, who, in her story last episode, referenced Luis Pales Matos, whose poems celebrated the African roots of Puerto Rican culture and helped create the Afro-Antiano genre. The other guest Echoes are from Rosa Colon, who will be our spotlight guest next episode, and tell us all about the art and activism that she takes part in. The poem, written and read by Francisco Matos Paoli, was an excerpt of Canto de la Lacora, or Song of Madness. I'll try to get a translation on the web at some point. The clips of FDR you heard were from the UVA Miller Center, which has audio files for several presidents. The clips of Truman are from the Truman Library, the clips of Munoz Marin is from an episode of the Drew Peterson show and all the music by Kevin McLeod was found and free to use under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0. This is Lou coming at you with another 
Rico and Sueños Minisode, part of the Power of You and Fiction podcast, the nonfiction podcast about fiction and its very real effects on our lives. Peace.